Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Well, good morning, Upper Room. I uh, want to welcome you if you're new to our church or you're new to this series or, uh, or you've been part of this over the last few weeks. We are in a journey called FAQ where we are dealing with answering life's most important questions and looking at them from the different points of different religions and ultimately what does Jesus have to say. Uh, now, if you have been tracking with us, what you'll have noticed is every week as we've been talking in each question, one after the other, each week we've been coming back to really land on the person, the work, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And we're basically saying our premise in this is that Jesus positioned himself really categorically outside of religion altogether. And that he is the answer, that he's the one in a sense that we are all looking for. And he is the ultimate answer to the questions that we have. Now, if you've been listening, this may bring up a question that really we're dealing with today, which is, well, how do you know that's true? Or maybe, how do you know if anything's true? Um, I wonder if actually even as we ask that question, we, it's more of a statement often. It's not like a conversation starter. It's a conversation ender, as in we say, well, you know, how do you know if anything's true, really? Or who can really know? And so maybe this idea of whether it's true or not is not actually a question we're asking. But perhaps if you're someone who, maybe if you're 13 or 14 or 15, like our church is actually uh, a little over 13 years old. Maybe you were born um, as, a, as a part of this family and you've sort of grown up in this. You'd say, well, this is kind of all I've known. Um, and I was taught about Jesus my whole life. Um, but how do I know that's true? Because maybe you have friends or family members or uh, maybe someone else in your neighborhood or in your school or in your workplace they were raised to believe something else. And you might say, well, if, I guess if I was raised like them, maybe I would believe that. How do I know that any of this is true? How do I know really what to believe? And maybe we say, well, who, who really knows? Actually, even if we think about the word um, truth um, in this statement, uh, the word truth, if we can be honest, uh, has, has some baggage with it. Um, I'm going to put like some, some like lightning bolts around here. Like, you know, it's kind of one of those things where we're like, truth is a, is a loaded word. Um, maybe some people feel like, well, that, that's kind of a it, it's a, it's a word that's like, who really knows? And can anyone have the truth? If you actually look at sort of the history of what we call modernity, which is sort of 17th century on, uh, philosophers and scientists and people began to write, said, you know what, like, you can't know and discover what's true based on what other people tell you. That truth imposed from, from an institution, particularly from religion, uh, that, that's, you can't trust that. Truth is really, you have to come to discover it yourself. And in the age of modernity, science was actually, or reason was the, um, the most important way or the most essential or the only really legitimate way to come to understand truth. That whatever is true is what can be reasoned with the mind, what can be proved through the scientific method, what can be seen and touched and is concrete. And so in that sense, um, the modern movement really, or modernity from the 17th century on, kind of threw off religion uh, and religious movements is saying those are movements that are people of trying to control you with the truth is saying I know what's true for you I know what you need to believe and and the scientific revolution that movement sort of threw that off and said no really only what can be known is what you can come to discover yourself through your mind through reason through science 
And so truth in that sense, or if we can say truth with a capital T, well, you can't trust other people who are telling you what the truth is. And many of us feel that way about the religion that we've uh, grown up with, or maybe we have those feelings about the church, or certainly we can relate to people in our lives and our families who feel that way. Oh, they're just trying to impose their truth on us to control us. But even as the scientific revolution and the scientific movement and the belief in human progress um, continued on, World War I and World War II was a slap in the face, a cold, hard reality of really what human progress or humans are, are capable of. And, and in a sense, it birthed the movement called post-modernity, which is really what came after modernity, which is not only that um, religion as an institution does not have the right or ability to tell us what to believe, but no institution does. And our faith, and, and really, if you think about children who are people who were born in the 80s and 90s, whose parents lived through those wars, um, and whose parents' parents lived through those wars, came to believe, no, we can't actually trust anybody to tell us what's true. Not just religion, but government and, um, and companies, that, that there's anybody who's trying to impose truth, that that's actually a negative word. And really, postmodernity says, you know what? It's not even about reason or what can be proved in science, because even science has failed us, or maybe people are manipulating scientific results to get the outcomes they want. Truth is really just what you feel. You come to uh, believe something. Hey, if it's true for you, it's true. If it works, it's true. There's no capital T truth. And, and truth is kind of this, uh, considered this relative thing that you kind of come to determine it yourself. There's no, who really knows? And hey, if that's true for you, that's what's true. And so the word truth, even when we come to this question of like, how do we know what's true? Maybe the, tr the word itself is problematic for us. Um, some might think of this word, the word faith, as saying, oh, well, yeah, that's, that's, that's a meaningful word. But I think in a lot of ways, you know what we'll do with this word faith, is we'll put this little cloud around it. See this like puffy little cloud, it's so cute. Um, right, because oftentimes people think, oh, faith, that doesn't have to do with sort of reason and understanding. It's just a feeling. And, and look, hey, it works for some people. Some people need a faith to get them through. And when we talk about faith in that sense, we kind of think like some might say, oh, you have a faith, but that's not for me. Or faith is this kind of general vague belief that things are going to work out in the end. And, and when some say, well, I have a faith in God or I have a faith, it sort of means like positive feelings or I sort of have general belief. And some people can say, well, take it or leave it, right? You need that, I don't need that, or that's for you, that's for me, that's whatever. And so maybe even uh, we have trouble relating to the words of truth or faith that the people in your life do. But what about this word? The word trust. Wow, now that's a really important word. That actually maybe doesn't have sort of the, some of the negative connotations with it. And it's actually not sort of an airy fairy, whatever you believe kind of thing. Trust is actually brings it right down to the ground level, right? And even if we may not be asking questions like, how do you know what's true? I suppose we're all sometimes saying out loud or certainly in our hearts, well, who can I trust? I was talking to a young man the other day, 19 years old, or 18 years old, he's in high school. So I said to him, hey, you know, do you have a good group of friends at your school? He said, yeah, I do, but who really knows what they say behind your back, <laughs> right? And I think maybe that expresses a sentiment that a lot of us have is saying, who can I trust? Can I trust my friends? 
Um, certainly the modern movement and the postmodern movement after it said, hey, you can't trust religion. You can't trust institutions. You can't trust your company to be loyal to you no matter how long you've worked for them. You can't trust the government to do what's in your best interest because it seems like people who are in government are only looking out for their own interests. And there's, there's these kinds of beliefs out there around trust, which is a really important issue for us. Can I trust my government? Can I trust my teacher? Can I trust my friends? Can I trust my pastor? Can I trust my priest? Can I trust the people in my family? Trust is this nitty gritty, actually really down to earth word that matters to all of us. Because I think primarily trust has to do with relationships. Who can I trust? Who can I believe in a world of fake news and placebos and you know, shifting shadows and people who say they're gonna do one thing and, and do another? The question of trust actually is maybe the most important because it's fundamentally not about sort of the truth principles or truth precepts. It's not about the feelings of faith. It's about relationships. Who can I trust? Interestingly, we find that the followers of Jesus, as they described their life with Christ and began to proclaim the message of Christ, their proclamation, what they chose to say, probably we could say had more to do with trust than anything else. In one of the letters that the Apostle John, one of the disciples of Jesus, wrote to uh, maybe we could say a church like ours, a young church, a new church, um, representing what he and the other apostles had come to believe, we find this really powerful declaration of trust. And he says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us also. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. In this passage, we actually find what is given to us, what was proclaimed to us and written down and passed down for over 2,000 years and what the earliest followers of Jesus had come to trust. And what we find is it actually offers us an answer um, that brings, right, the stability and the peace and the credibility and the sense of assurance that all of us need in this world where we say, who can I trust? The early followers of Jesus said, we proclaim to you something that we have had firsthand experience concerning, and they use this words, the word of life. They said, this is what we are proclaiming. And in this little phrase, word of life, which actually they, they are meaning to refer to Jesus, they're saying Jesus is the word of life. And it's fascinating the two words that they choose to describe Jesus. The, the word, word, really is from the Greek word that means logos. And the word life is from the Greek word zoe. And if you understand the translations of both these words, Logos, we could actually say, could be translated as reality and zoe as vitality. Now think about this for a moment. 
what the disciples were saying they had had firsthand experience with was something that gave them both reality, as in concrete, as in something that the mind and the body can actually engage with, but also vitality. They describe Jesus in using these terms, the word of life, the one who is both brings reality to us, but also vitality. The word zoe was not like the Greek word bios, which meant physical life. Zoe meant, you know, like vitality, as in when I say, I feel alive, something inside me that is alive. The early disciples said Jesus is the word of life, the one who helps us understand reality and who gives us vitality. Timothy Keller described it this way. He said, if you are going to test your worldview or your religion and how you look at the world and what you think is true, he said it kind of has to pass two tests. He said, first of all, you have to ask yourself, is this intellectually credible? If I could say, in other words, does it correspond to reality? Does it seem to make sense based on reality as I know it? Is it intellectually credible? But secondly, is it existentially satisfying? <laughs> Which is a, a sort of a fancy way of saying, does it work for you? Not just is it true, but does it work for you? Or does it give, does it give you vitality? He said, whatever you believe has to go through these two tests. And fascinating, isn't it, that the early disciples of followers of Jesus said, Jesus is himself the one who helps us understand reality, the way things are. Like, is it true in the head, in the mind? And what does it do for my heart and for my soul? It brings reality and vitality. Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian novelist who wrote uh, the book War and Peace, and, and this week I was looking at the list of the top 100 books you should read. Anna Karenina was one of the other ones that he wrote. Um, describes in his own journey to understand both reality and vitality, very honest, uh, in, in a book called Confession that he wrote. It was a nonfiction. He said this, My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man. A question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I'm doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? He was saying this, what's real? How do I know what's real? And will that reality actually bring meaning, vitality to my life? In a sense, he's describing honestly, and this was actually on his journey to come to, he eventually became a follower of Jesus as he got to this point and said, I need something, I need someone who is going to tell me and explain to me the way the world works, reality, but also in a way that brings vitality to my life. And Keller points out, we need both of those things to test our worldview. Interestingly, if you think about the naturalist worldview, the world that says, hey, what we see is all we have. There is no grand design. There is no capital P purpose. There is no capital T truth. We came from nothing. We're going to nothing. All we have is what we see. And therefore, science is the best way to explain and understand the world. There isn't a why. There's just a what and a how. 
That may, for some, have, have some intellectual credibility to it because we can say, well, we look at evolution or whatever it is, how we explain the origins of the universe, and that explains, and that gives us intellectual credibility, but I would suggest that it leaves us a bit lacking when it comes to the existential satisfaction. It may attempt to explain reality, but when it comes to vitality, Probably if you're a naturalist and you're getting married and at the point that you say your vows to your wife, you're not going to stand up there on your wedding day and say, well, I hope that the chemicals that are operating within me continue to produce the feelings that I understand as love so that you know, I feel like moving towards you and not moving away from you and then I'll stay with you as long as those chemicals work in me. You wouldn't say, you say, that's a very unsatisfying kind of marriage ceremony, right? Because it's missing vitality. The naturalist worldview actually may attempt to explain reality in terms of science and the world and natural order, but it cannot explain love. It cannot explain why a human being moves to forgive when they should just retaliate. It cannot actually explain why someone who is strong, instead of following natural selection and ignoring or obliterating the weak, wants to help the weak. The whole level of feelings in human experience, actually, the naturalist worldview comes up a bit, a bit lacking. It may, for some, pass the reality test, but it does not pass the vitality test. On the other side, you might look at some of the Eastern religions or sort of modern New Age movement, which says, hey, meditation, and that's a really good practice. And so, you know, if we um, come to believe that the world is actually an illusion and what you need to do is meditate and breathe and spend regular time in silence and solitude, all of which are helpful, but to disconnect from this world that is actually an illusion that drags us in through pain or pleasure, that may bring some sense of vitality, but intellectually we have to say, is it true that the world is an illusion and that my only solution is to disconnect from it? Because the pavement is actually hard when you hit it and my skin does actually cut or bleed when it's cut. And so I think we have to say, wait, there needs to be an explanation of the way the world is and what is really true, or what can I trust that provides both reality and explanation for what is and vitality. That's the claim that the apostles were making. They said, this is what we proclaim to you about the word of life. Jesus himself, he said that, that he both brings reality and he offers vitality. Well, how, you might be asking, how could they claim that? How could they claim that? Well, it's actually contained in the verse that we read um, in 1 John 1, when they said, that which we have, and if you're paying attention to the words, they said, that which we have heard, that which we have seen, and that which we have touched, They said, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have touched with our hands, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. What did they mean by that? What had they heard? What had they seen? What had they touched that gave them this understanding that Jesus was indeed reality and vitality, that he passes the test of being both intellectually credible, but also existentially deeply satisfying? Well, first, what had they heard? They had heard Jesus' teaching. They were the ones, in a sense, who were part of the oral tradition that eventually wrote down the stuff that they heard. They said, we heard him teach, and his teaching both gave us reality. It helped explain the world to us, but it also gave us vitality. And in fact, if you look 
around the world and 2,000 years later, the teachings of Jesus are still resonating with cultures where he never set his foot, places in the world he never went. The words of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, we say things like the golden rule, have never been made better. They are as good as when they were first spoken. Many people look to and still operate out of the teachings of Jesus in a way that actually um, explains reality to them. Jesus said, one of the things Jesus taught was he said, you know, human beings look at the outward appearance. They look at what you look like, what your skin color is, how much money you have, where you come from, how you present yourself, what job you have, what house you own. He said, but God looks at the heart. God looks at the inside. And we say, yeah, that seems to actually make sense in reality. You know why? Because we've all had this experience that sometimes who we present ourselves to be or who others present themselves to be by how they look, how they dress, what, uh, um, where they're from, and what they claim to be is actually different than who they are on the inside. There's an outside to people and there's an inside to people. And Jesus says the inside is actually more important because what comes, what is inside eventually comes out. And we've all had that experience where we've done things we never thought we would do. Or we've seen other people, we say, oh, I didn't know they would do that. It came from the inside out. The teachings of Jesus make sense of reality. The teachings of the golden rule said, yeah, it is. You know, do unto others as you have. Don't do unto others as they have done to you. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We say, reality, you know what? If everybody actually did that, there would be less war in the world. There would be more healthier and happier homes. There would be happier workplaces. There would be better classrooms. There would be better friends. That actually makes sense. But it also brings vitality to know and believe and experience that God actually looks at my heart, not just my outward appearance, makes me realize, wow, I have a worth inside that isn't determined by what I look like or what I've done or what I wear or what my accomplishments are in life. The teachings of Jesus, they said, we've heard it. It not only explained reality to us, it, it made vitality come from inside us. That's why I say, what we've heard, we proclaim to you. And that was actually one of the things that Jesus said is, hey, go out into all the world and teach them what I taught you. It's why they called Jesus the rabbi, because his words not only brought, you know, reality, explanation, but vitality, life. But they said, not only what we have heard, but what did they see? They saw his life and they saw his death. And they said that too brought reality and vitality. They said we saw a life that was compassionate, that was kind, that validated women and children as equal members of society. We saw him move towards those who were marginalized, those who were sick, those who were poor, those who were from another ethnicity. We saw how he was radically inclusive. We saw his behavior we saw that he used whatever power he had in the service of others and he invited others to do the same. We also saw that he died. He was willing to give up his life for us. Jesus said no greater love this that they lay down their life, someone lays down their life for their friends. And he called his followers friends. They saw how he lived and it it both explained the way the world really works and it gave them a sense of vitality in life. You may say, what do you mean? How did the life and death of Jesus correspond with reality? Well, some of you may know Jim Collins who wrote the book Built to Last and then Good to Great. He's sort of a leadership expert. 
And he had written this book, Built to Last, about companies that uh, seem to sort of beat the uh, stock market curve in terms of rates of return, that seem to do better in terms of attracting and keeping great talent, that seem to be all around good organizations. And, um, you know, after that book, they, they said to him, yeah, but like, how do you explain the fact that like two companies might have the same set of resources, same market opportunities, and one seems to like soar and the other one falls apart? And he said to his research team, go and research it, but you are not allowed to come back and tell me that the answer or the difference is leadership. And so he said they spent months and months and months researching this. And they came back to him and they all held hands and they said, we know you told us not to say this, but the answer is leadership. And he said, no, that can't be. So they said, no, it's a certain kind of leadership. The companies that thrived in the long run in terms of not only rates of return in the stock market, but employee satisfaction and doing good in the world, their leaders had a combination of personal determination and personal humility. And Jim Collins, when he was speaking on this at a conference I was at, he said, this is what the life of Jesus was about. He actually noted, he said, actually it proves that determination to follow your purpose and your willingness to be humble and lay down your life for others, he said, actually proves to get better market results in the stock market. This actually corresponds to reality. And you and I all know this. Humility, self-sacrifice is what we want from our parents, from our teachers, from our leaders, from our pastors, from our CEOs. We want them to lay down their lives, to be willing. They're the kind of people we want to be with. It actually proves right in reality, but it also brings a sense of vitality as we begin to realize Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. It is better and more fulfilling to live out your purpose and to be willing to lay down your life for the sake of others. It is better to give away your wealth rather than to hoard it. We actually realize, yeah, there's something inside me that gives me a sense of purpose and joy. It doesn't just make sense and explain to the world. It actually gives me a sense of vitality. They said what we have heard from Jesus, his teaching, what we have seen, his life and his death. But then it says what we have touched. What did they mean? That they just sort of touched Jesus' hand when they were hanging out with him? No, the language they used there is the language they used when Jesus had died, which they had seen him die, and he came back to life. And they were having a hard time believing that he was alive again. They thought he was a ghost. And he said, touch me and see. Touch my hands. Touch my side. This is where I was pierced with the nails. This is where I was pierced with the spear. He invited them to touch him, and they said, oh my goodness, we didn't just see him give his life away and die. We actually touched his resurrected body. This is where my handwriting starts to degenerate, okay? I should have been a doctor. What we have heard, what we have seen, what we have touched, they said, we actually saw him die and then we touched his alive body a few days later they said this is what we proclaim to you this is real life after death is real Jesus, his resurrected body, was not a spirit, and we all had a group hallucination. There's a lot of people that, really, there's a lot of people that get stuck at this point to say, how could this be, right? How could the resurrection of Jesus Christ be true? It was a myth. His followers made it up. They all had a hallucination. Now, people are known to hallucinate, um, 
but you'd have a hard time finding sort of medical research on whole groups of people who, who hallucinate at the same time and see the same thing at the same time, even if they're hopped up on a lot of legalized drugs, okay? Uh, that, that just doesn't happen. There, there, there wasn't like a, a hallucination that saw that doesn't actually even make sense. They said, we saw him die, and then we touched his alive body after. The hallucination theory doesn't even make sense. Neither does this. There's no way to explain the transformation of the disciples because really before they had touched his resurrected body, they were hiding out for fear. They had all abandoned him when he had been arrested and very few of them came to actually his death. Why? Because they were legitimately, understandably afraid for their lives. If they killed him, they're going to kill us, which is why you have that story of Peter denying he even knew him because he was like, I know what's going to happen. If they say I'm with him, they're going to kill his followers too. And they wanted to stamp out this threat, this Messiah who was telling people he was God. And so they don't want to know part of it. How did those people, within a few weeks and days, stand in front of the same people who killed Jesus and said, we don't care, we're not going to stop talking about the fact that he's raised from the dead, even if you kill us. And actually many of them were killed because of it. There's no explanation for the transformation in the disciples that they would have suddenly gone from, we're afraid, we saw him die, and now, no, we actually touched his alive body after we had seen him die. Not only that, if you say that there was no resurrection, you have no way to explain everything that happened after and how this small group of 12 turned into 120, turned into a few thousand, turned into thousands and thousands to the point that 300 years later, the entire empire of Rome, who had put Jesus to death, bowed their knee and said, this is the official religion of the state. They said, this is real. We touched his body. But it wasn't just reality that the resurrection gave them. It gave them vitality. You know what it said to them? You don't need to be afraid, even of death. You don't need to be afraid of sickness. Which is why the emperor Julian, who came years later uh, in, in the third century, was remarking, and, and this is written down, how the Christians were so radically um, involved in caring for their own Roman people who were dying because of a plague that was ripping through Rome. And he said, this is embarrassing. The Christians are caring way better for our people than we are. Why? Because they weren't afraid of death anymore. Because they had seen Jesus willing to lay down his life for other people. Because they had heard the teachings of Jesus and they had watched his life caring for the sick and the marginalized, which is why the Christians were the ones who started hospitals and hospices, because their whole lives had been changed. Not just reality, what they had seen and heard and touched, but the vitality that changed how they felt about themselves, how they saw the world. Friends, what the early disciples were proclaiming and what the Christian church has claimed all the way through is that Jesus invites us not to believe a set of truth principles. Here's a bunch of truths. Believe this. That's not actually what the scriptures put together uh, are, are trying to tell us, a bunch of truth principles. Neither is it prescribing some kind of faith which is just a matter of feelings, you know, and just, you know, whatever believes, whatever is true for you, whatever gives you, whatever gets you through. That is not actually what the scriptures envision when they talk about faith. Really what Jesus was saying was, trust me. You know what he said to his disciples when they were saying, how do we know? How do we know what to believe? What's true? He said to them, I am the truth. See, trust is primarily about a relationship and Jesus actually invited his first followers to say, put your trust in me. Truth is a person. 
understanding what's real, what brings reality, what explains the world, and what brings vitality to your life is about life with me. It is both about intellectual credibility. Does this make sense? Does this explain the world? And also about existential satisfaction. Does this actually give me hope and peace and joy? And Jesus says, come, trust me. Because of what I have said, because of how I lived, because of how I have come back to life. That's what they were convinced of. That which we have heard, that which we have seen, that which we have touched, that we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. Jesus invites us to trust him. If we say, well, how do I know what's true? Jesus says, come, I am the truth. I will help explain reality to you. I will give you vitality, zoe life from the inside out. Through what I have said, through how I lived, and through the fact that I am still alive. And so I want to leave you with a question. As you wrestle through this, if you're someone who said, yes, I am a follower of Jesus. I have come to him. I do trust him. Or you might say, I am, but I'm having trust issues or saying, I'm not sure. I want to ask you this. What are your trust issues? What are they? For some of us, maybe they're the more of the intellectual kind. Like, is this credible? How do I figure this out? And I'm not just talking to those of you that maybe say, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm saying even for many of us, as we are followers of Jesus, we still have trust issues, Right. Can I trust him? And, and is some of it, are there intellectual questions about, about maybe the scriptures and how it's put together and how can I trust in the biographical accounts of Jesus or how can I trust, you know, what makes sense of like creation and um, how do I trust the reality of the resurrection? Maybe, maybe some of your trust issues are intellectual ones or maybe others, they're existential ones. Like, I, you know, even the question of suffering, if God is good, how can there be suffering in the world? That's an existential question because I feel pain or how come God didn't answer this prayer? We, we all have them. That's just a, a, a normal part of a relationship is trust and building that trust. And so I want to invite you to, to actually have those conversations. For those of you that are in home groups, have them in your home groups saying, yeah, what are your trust issues? Are they more to do with sort of intellectual stuff? Are they existential ones? Is it about reality or about vitality? Um, maybe if you say, oh, I'm not a follower of Jesus, I have lots of questions. Maybe you might sit down with someone who is and say, hey, I have some trust issues. I need to work through these. That's actually even a great question to ask some of your friends. You know, many people will say, oh, the church is just this, or I don't believe in God because of this. You might say, hey, what are your trust issues? You obviously feel that, that, that that's failed you or you were let down or maybe by a family member. What, what, how, how are you working through those trust issues? Are they intellectual ones or are they existential ones? This is a great question to ask ourselves and to ask each other. It's a courageous question. You might say, well, you know, how can I trust? What, what, how can I ask these questions? What, what will this mean if I actually start to trust Jesus? Why would we do this? Well, the, the key actually for us is in this passage. The disciples say, we are explaining this to you so that you might have fellowship with us and fellowship with God and that your joy may be complete. What are they saying? They're saying we are inviting you to experience love in a relationship of trust. With the, with the community of Christ, with Christ himself, and out of that, your joy will overflow. The reason we work to overcome our trust issues, the reason we kneel, uh, lean into them and talk about them is because we want to experience the love and intimacy that comes from a trust relationship with the community of Christ and with Jesus himself. And we want our joy 
to be complete. And so that's my invitation to you as you ask this question to experience how God brings joy out of that, not only as you begin to understand the way the world is, but as you experience the vitality from the inside out.